Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, July the 19th, 2023. As always, I'm talking to you from the West Coast, from a rather cool San Francisco. Uh, but the rest of the West Coast is anything but cool. Seems as if we're living in anything but a programmable planet. Um, the West is burning one way or the other. If you look at the maps, quite literally on one of these maps, um, the heat wave is not close to being over. And the maps being represented, at least in the Washington Post, show the West literally on fire. Um, Phoenix has had 18 days of 110 degree weather and counting. That's a world record. Uh, the seas in South Florida are boiling. It seems to be almost biblical what's happening uh, to the planet in the last couple of weeks. Um, NASA is meeting climate experts. The World Health Organization is getting involved. It seems, if anything, this has become a a planetary emergency. Uh, we need to program our planet. And that's indeed mm -hmm. what we're going to be talking about today with my guest, Ted Anton. He has a new book out, Programmable Planet, the Synthetic Biology uh, Revolution, which suggests in part that new technology will allow us to confront climate change. Uh, Ted is joining us from a warm, if not boiling, uh, Chicago. Ted, welcome. Haven't we heard all this before, Ted? I have to admit I'm rather nervous and suspicious of this. We're always promised these new technologies. In fact, that's what we were promised in the industrial age. And now we are reaping in biblical terms the consequences of all this. That's a great question. Yes, it could be the last thing we want, Andrew, is a new industrial revolution. And, and uh, you know, one of the qualities of... Um, uh, this new form of uh, making products, medicines, possibly fuels, clothing, food, uh, using synthetic biology, use, is that it, it doesn't have to be on a huge scale. It can be local, it can be in smaller uh, fermentation uh, facilities, much like uh, making wine or cheese or beer. And, and so, um, you know, it, it doesn't have to be a revolution. I, I agree with you. Maybe that's the last thing we need. But it is, for better or worse. And I mean, your book, the subtitle of your book is The Synthetic Biology Revolution. So whether we like it or not, I mean, we can find all sorts of other words to describe it, but it is a revolution. I mean, if, if, if what it does changes the world, if we have synthetic life, Ted, that's yes. perhaps the most revolutionary thing we humans have ever invented, even more revolutionary than artificial intelligence. Well, yeah, I would say that um, it's a, a revolution in thought, a revolution in our relationship with the natural world. Uh, instead of one, like the last three industrial revolutions, they uh, have us dominating the world, mastering it. Uh, maybe we can live uh, in partnership with it, I suppose. Um, uh, so it's a revolution, maybe in thought, really uh, in 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 the whole way of structuring an economy. Uh, so yeah, it's 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 um, uh, I think trying to counter some of the mistakes of the previous industrial revolutions. 
Well, before we get into all that, Ted, ex explain what synthetic biology actually is. You're a professor of English, so you're not a hardcore <laughs> scientist, although you've made a career writing about different kinds of synth uh, scientific revolutions. You wrote a book about people who want to live forever back in 2013. So what exactly is synthetic biology? Uh, good question. So synthetic biology began with changing life by changing DNA. So that was the um, genetic uh, editing revolution of the 1970s, which, um, you know, gave us GMOs and uh, insulin uh, for, for people uh, who couldn't get it before because it used to be uh, harvested from calves and um, hun you know, hundreds of thousands of calves had to be um, killed to provide insulin. And then uh, in the 2000s, technologies improved such that you could uh, move from genetic editing to designing whole uh, circuits in cells um, to, to enable them to make proteins, enzymes, uh, and to respond to um, changes in the environment at a much larger scale. Again, this is the way you describe it. it it's, it's rather sh chilling. It's, it's Dolly the Sheep, basically, isn't it? Well, yes, uh, Dolly the Sheep was cloning. Um, and I think that's exactly why we have these discussions on shows like yours, because it can be uh, at some level chilling uh, if it goes wrong or if you, uh, you know, that was the all of the young scientists involved in this field were um, inspired by Jurassic Park, the movie and novel. And of course, that didn't end well. So, um um, you know, one of the things we have to ask is, uh, will it be a utopia or a dystopia? And that's that's why um, uh, we need to have these discussions. Um, I, I would say that uh, most everybody's goal in this field is to solve problems. And, uh, you know, it's it's it really wasn't got, getting anywhere for quite a while, except small successes like a malaria medicine like insulin, which was a big success. Uh, and, and then the COVID vaccine would be the example of how um, changing life by changing, in that case, RNA could save the world. Because if you remember, January 2020, the world came to a dead halt. So in your view, this issue of redesigning medicine could be the uh, the most, or at least in the short term, the most beneficial result of synthetic biology. But it's still the big drug companies owning this new medicine. They're still making huge profits from it, aren't they? Right. And as did the vaccine makers. And, um, you know, that's that's a question about some of these um, uh, therapies. You know, I, no, I would say I would disagree with you. I'd say the biggest... I, I would say synthetic biology is a series of base hits. Uh, that is um, the COVID vaccine being big, but let's say um, meatless meat and possible burgers made uh, by, by getting um, yeast to make a protein. Uh, cosmetics, so the company uh, Amaris, which is one of the longest and most successful uh, synthetic biology companies in California, your state, um, has really moved into uh, 
sustainable cosmetics. Uh, so, um, you know, medicine is big, uh, primarily because of the vaccine. Um, but there's there's lots of areas. Uh, the a hot new area is sustainable aviation fuel. Uh, I have an article coming out in Wall Street Journal this weekend on um, the huge push when you talk about the burning planet uh, to create aviation fuel, jet fuels that will be um, much safer for the environment than kerosene and petroleum. So tell me a little bit uh, about the book. As I said, you're an English professor uh, <laughs> in Chicago. So you're not writing this as a scientist. It's uh, what uh, book people call uh, creative nonfiction. It's a narrative of your experience uh, meeting the scientists and the pioneers and the entrepreneurs and perhaps the crackpots driving <laughs> this revolution. Um, why did you decide to write the book? Well, uh, you know, first of all, you've read it very closely. And yes, I am interested in the stories. I do get interested in these community of dreamers, sometimes crackpots, the lunatic fringe is the phrase used by Nobel winner Francis Arnold. Uh, for her work in directed evolution. Um, I, you know, I'm writing in the tradition of, uh, uh, you might say, um, Stephen Jay Gould, Carl Sagan, uh, Natalie Ann Jay, a New York Times writer, did Beauty of the Beastly, Turn, reading science as profoundly human endeavor with all its mistakes uh, its rivalries, its profits, its tangled motivations, uh, but its messiness, uh, you know, uh, because the gap between what they're trying to do and what real life is like in the lab is where a writer like me loves to uh, work. We did a show earlier today, uh, Ted, with Evan Thomas, who is a historian, and he he just come out with a book about the American decision to drop a two bomb, a two nuclear weapon, two nuclear bombs on on Japan. Of course, um, uh, Oppenheimer is about to come no. out. I think we're in in the next couple of weeks we're going to have another debate, public debate in America about whether or not America should have dropped the bomb. Um, and Christopher Nolan, who right. Directed Oppenheimer has suggested that it should be a cautionary tale for Silicon Valley in terms of the way in which technological technological innovation can be so disastrous. Do you think also in that sense could be a cautionary tale for the scientists you've met? I mean, are these people yes. Yes. are they morally serious? Do they understand that their their, their revolution, their breakthroughs, their disruption could change everything? And, and, and do you trust them? <laughs> That's a great question. I, 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 one of my all-time favorite, you ask uh, what uh, brought me uh, is, uh, into this field is um, Richard Rhodes' Making of the Atomic Bomb. Uh, and um, uh, I think that synthetic biology is very keenly aware uh, that the, the people on the front line because of um, Mis potential misuse also for that matter, uh, biowarfare of some of their um, research. And so, I mean, there are a lot, several ongoing uh, ethical reviews, uh, particularly about gene editing of humans in uh, embryo. Um, 
but it is a cautionary tale. I think that's why we read about their work. Uh, we we um, try to evaluate that work. This science is too important to leave it to the scientists. Lots of talk, Ted, as I'm sure you know, about international organizations, international agreements, countries coordinating in terms of regulating AI. Do you think the same should be true of synthetic biology? Does the UN or other international organizations and other scientific groups that need to step in and create rules, guardrails for what you can and can't do with this new technology? I think absolutely. Um, that's that's. Um, I think everybody in the field would agree that is required because right now there's no enforcement. I, I mentioned some of these uh, review panels going on uh, involuntarily by the scientists, but the only um, enforcement is to get your grant cut uh, there's no way to enforce the rules. And a model is uh, from 1978 in California, the Asilomar Conference, which took that very first stage, we mentioned gene editing, and created a set of rules um, in response to public outcry, uh, which uh, have been adhered to. And, and, and we need, a, I think, a comprehensive review again at this moment for the reasons you mentioned. Technology moves so fast and that's the problem we can never catch up as soon as we think we understand it, the technologists and the scientists are on to the next thing. Your book begins its narrative just up the road from me where I used to live at UC Berkeley uh, in Latimer Hall. Um, tell me a little bit about some of these scientists who are driving this revolution uh, well you, you noted that they were eager for for grants are they traditional academic scientists who are driven by grants I mean, do they believe they're changing the world what's driving them yeah i would stay away from that phrase changing the world that's that's certainly a silicon valley uh phrase uh it's yeah. true but, but, but silicon valley always imagines they're changing the world <laughs> even if they invent a new app for shopping but this stuff actually is we're talking about the creation of life ted that that right. changes the world as much as anything we humans have ever invented well it can and um it did with the uh vaccine um well you just started with one of my favorites danielle tolman airsick who uh is doing work on um using um uh viruses as healers to get uh, medicines into the cell, and and uh, she uh, was then at Berkeley, and now is at Northwestern University um, in Chicago, which has uh, one of the leading institutes in synthetic biology. Um, and uh, I'm I'm yeah I'm very interested in this field uh, because these people are kind of not straight academics; they are many of them founding companies uh, with all the difficulties that um, creates. And also, uh, they're moving between different disciplines from, basically, synthetic biology is applying the principles of engineering, like making an electrical circuit or a computer circuit, to life. Uh, and so, um, you know, this is very, uh, they're, they're interesting people because they are moving, uh, again, between very different fields uh, the, they have this revelation that life is um, programmable, modular, um, drop-in. That is, you can take a, a, a 
a system from one organism, put it into another. And, and, and um, uh, it's a kind of a brave new world that we all should be following, interested in, and trying to regulate for all the reasons you've mentioned. Right. I mean, you just used two phrases. Life is programmable. Maybe I'll use that as the title of our conversation. Yes. It's chilling. And then you describe this as a brave new world. Of course, Huxley yes. wrote his brave new world as a dystopia. When life is programmable, what, what exactly does that mean? Well, it means that uh, it's digital, if in a way. Uh, so DNA is the same, whether it's in you, me, a mammoth, a bacterium, a yeast, uh, a virus, a DNA virus or an RNA virus. Uh, and it uh, means that it can be changed. Uh, and um, so you have the ability to uh, create, get life to create products you need in a more um, sustainable way than burning coal or burning oil. Um, or, it doesn't uh, have to be. I mean, I take your point on sustainability, but it doesn't have to be sustainable. Um, there was a, something at Stanford about scientists talking sustainability at an inaugural synthetic biology symposium, but that's what they will talk. There's nothing inevitable about this being sustainable, is it? It could be even more destructive than industrial technology. Oh, I, I don't I don't think so necessarily. I think it is inherently more sustainable uh, because you're not burning carbon uh, and you're getting some of the same products. So clothing, all the things we got from petroleum, plastics, we get bought from biology, uh, fuel, um, uh, cosmetics, uh, polyester. So um, I think it is inherently uh, more sustainable. But then again, there are a lot of um, controversies about biofuels, whether ethanol, which goes in my diesel Volkswagen, um, you know, is uh, requiring us to grow corn, take corn away from people, people's mouths, uh, you know, use the same fertilizer from pest, you know, pesticides from petroleum. Uh, so, so, I mean, um, they are, it's a, I, I guess it would, I would say it's a one weapon in a, a, a bunch of weapons to try to stop the burning that you started off our show with. Ted, um, what does this do to the concept of nature? Does it mean the end of nature, it suggested that we, we create nature. So this boundary between us humans and nature no longer exists. Is that fair for better or worse? I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad thing. Well, yeah, nature created us. Nature creates um, the um, ability to manipulate nature. Uh, I think it does. It does put us in a much more profound relationship than extraction, mining, um, industrialization as you and I know it um, to become, I guess, partners with nature. I, I would very much hesitate to say end of nature because uh, the pandemic shows us that nature is always there, as does um, the current heat wave. Um, uh, so it's, it's uh, I guess, a change from uh, mastery to uh, symbiotic relationship with nature, cooperation with it, uh, at a, um, a smaller scale 
than uh, conventional industry. But why should it mean? You know, I, I, I'm you. You seem to be a congenital optimist, which is an attractive <laughs> quality, but I'm not convinced. You say the end of mastery. We did a show with a science fiction writer uh, earlier this year, a San Francisco-based science fiction writer who imagines the way in which we will use, I think, synthetic biology to uh, create and reinvent planets around the universe. Right. That right. seems to me to be anything but the end of mastery. Well, no, absolutely. That's called terraforming, and I cover that in the book. And I'm uh, yeah, and I think her book was actually called the Terraformers. So I'm you're yes. probably familiar with the book. Yes, I think so. And and um, uh, she's as science as fiction writers do so beautifully. I've just been rereading uh, Fahrenheit four fifty one. Um, or uh, for that matter, um, Margaret Atwood, Oryx and Crake. Uh, they've been working with this material since Frankenstein, which is uh, Mary Wollstonecraft's uh, brilliant book about some of these same issues. And that's what they're supposed to do. Uh, and so I, I would be hesitate to say anything about end of or changing the world. I would say this uh, some of these researchers are trying to uh, modify the world um, and uh, in, in order to uh, address the issues like global climate change, which every one of us is thinking about every minute of every day. Well, especially if we're burning. Right? Yeah. Less. So what about when it comes to food and, and how we right. eat? Uh, it was an interesting piece I read preparing for this about Ugandans apparently are going to eat more genetically engineered foods as researchers turn to synthetic biology. Is this going to be one of those technical revolutions where the rich in San Francisco will continue to go to Whole Foods and everyone else will eat synthetically produced food? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, that's a big issue. Um, the class system, even with the vaccine, um, in, in science, in public health, in uh, nutrition. Uh, but each one of us is eating some kind of, uh, you know, f agriculturally developed food uh, or animals that are raised on um, and agriculturally developed food. Uh, so uh, even that person in San Francisco at Whole Foods uh, is, uh, you know, probably the... Um, the fertilizer that went into making the food or the pesticide was in some way uh, and genetically engineered. Um, so uh, I think that's a big question. Um, uh, for the Ugandan, for somebody who's, uh, and let's not pick on Uganda, uh, for uh, somebody who's starving, the most important thing is to get more meat. <laughs> um, and so uh, in that sense, uh, you and I are trying to cut down on our meat consumption. Um, they're trying to get uh, more protein. And um, of course, you know, uh, a lot of what synthetic biology is doing is trying to make that available without, um, you know, killing off tens of thousands of animals uh, by using plant-based or cell-free by creating meat in the lab. Uh, so I, I think that's a danger, yes. Um, always in um, public health of the rich getting the vaccine first or getting the uh, more wholesome food first. Ted, you, in the past, as I said, you've, you've written about um, 
people who want to live forever, your 2013 book, The Longevity Seekers. What will this do if this technology is fully realized to life itself? Will it allow us to live forever? Will we all be longevity seekers? <laughs> no, no. And, 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 and uh, I, I appreciate your question because a lot of that longevity stuff hasn't worked through 2013. It's now 2023 or 10 years later. Uh, now, what will happen is I hope that we can start to cool things off in the earth. We can um, perhaps get protein in more sustainable way than we currently do. We can get um, clothing, fuel, medicine in a more sustainable way than we currently do. It's a small step. I think it's in tandem synthetic biology with uh, fossil fuel fuels, uh, nuclear, uh, Oppenheimer, um, electrical uh, power, uh, wind power, solar power. So uh, I'm, I'm not trying to, let's say, change the world, but maybe um, make a, small, a couple of small steps to modify our economy and the way we are structured today. Ted, uh, as, as I said, we talked a little bit about AI. Uh, Christopher Nolan is warning that um, we need to learn uh, from the nuclear chapter in our history to manage AI. What happens when you combine AI with synthetic biology? They're parallel technologies, but um, they seem ominously close in some ways. What happens when smart machines determine <laughs> how we do or don't use synthetic biology? Well, um, I think it can speed things up. Uh, one of the... Um... Uh, qualities of uh, the advances, the golden age right now of biology we're living in is that you can um, you can direct evolution using um, uh, computers uh, algorithms. You can direct uh, evolution. Direct evolution. That sounds godlike to me. <laughs> well, uh, that was exactly the Nobel Prize that Francis Arnold won in 2018. Um, which has led to um, a bunch of uh, new uh, medical therapies, as you say, is many of them quite expensive. Um, but um, it's, it's, I would say AI enables you to um, run through different, um, s design different systems faster and test them out uh, to make sure they're safe, of course. Um, so there, it is kind of a parallel to the synthetic biology revolution, uh, but you're, nobody's writing an organism uh, using a chat GPT at this point, which some of my students are trying to use. Finally, let's go back to the ethical questions associated with synthetic biology. Um, um, according to uh, Wikipedia, my authority on all these things, <laughs> created by humans, although we don't know, always know who they are, <laughs> uh, common ethical questions in association with um, synthetic biology are, is it morally right to tamper with nature? Is one playing God when creating new life? What happens if a synthetic organism accidentally escapes? There's a whole panoply of moral questions here, Ted. Coming back to your narrative in, um, in the book, Programmable Planet, which is a narrative rather than a scientific investigation, are these researchers that you came across at UC Berkeley, uh, are they really thinking through these ethical questions? 
do they need more ethical education? Um, should they be, rather than taking classes uh, in synthetic biology, should they be going up, uh, to a couple of buildings over at UC Berkeley and take some classes in philosophy? Yes, I do think so. And I do think uh, they're very concerned about it. Another Nobel winner at Berkeley, Jennifer Doudna, has been um, in gene editing. Um, right, and uh, Walter Isaacson just came out with a big book about her. Right, it's a beautiful book. And her work is beautiful. And she's profoundly uh, a leader in um, uh, creating an ethical framework for using uh, gene editing on humans. Uh, I think I, I devote a whole chapter to the ethics of, bio, of changing life, uh, tampering with nature. Um, and uh, I think they all should be taking philosophy courses and uh, listening to your program, reading my book. Yeah, definitely listening to my program. <laughs> yes. And uh, of course, reading your book. And thank you. Because um, uh, those are big questions. And uh, of course, it's age old. We've been doing this since we had, took the first wolf and made it our, our uh, pet dog, the first house cat, the first um, uh, farm uh, agricultural product. Uh, but it's very important to, to be answering and, and, and answering those questions that you raised. Well, let's end, Ted. It's, uh, it's an interesting conversation, a very important one. And certainly yeah. not the last time we talk about this, perhaps you might make a couple of suggestions about um, how this synthetic biology revolution should be managed, regulated, addressed, and thought of by people who don't really understand what this stuff is, but is going to profoundly impact on our species for the next few centuries? Well, I think that uh, the World Health Organization, you, you mentioned the United Nations, should be at the forefront of uh, creating a set of rules for the study of um, genetic uh, viruses, of editing uh, uh, genes in humans. I think um, that we should... Uh, um, have a, uh, a national panel, uh, which is going on right now on, on the same topic. That's um, the National Biodefense Board. Uh, the Biden administration has made uh, synthetic biology a major uh, funding um, uh, program um, this year. And that includes um, uh, a national and international panel to create a set of rules to be followed by all researchers.